soul not to give thanks on Thanksgiving Day. I think people generally understand that that's the point of the day. You do feel bad for the atheist who looks around at all the wonderful things that we have and all the blessings, the abundance, and feels like he ought to be thanking someone and looks around and can't find anyone to thank uh, for that. And uh, I understand, in fact, someone described that once as the argument from gratitude, uh, that if no, no other reason, uh, God is important uh, so that we have someone to thank, uh, because obviously none of this came from our own hand. Uh, we did not cause it. But uh, Paul talks about ingratitude as really the central sin of fallen man. And I want to read that together. I want you to stand with me as we read verses 18 through 23, but I intend mainly to preach from verse 20 and 21 this morning. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. These are the words of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Let's pray. Lord God, as we open the word together, I pray that you would help us to see our central duty, which is to give you praise and glory. That's what we were made to do. And uh, this time of year... Is a time for us to rehearse that and to renew our commitment to praising you and glorifying you. And I pray, Lord, that uh, for all of us, that there would not be a sinful neglect when it comes to the gratitude that we express and show to you. I pray that we would honor you, that we would love you. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, use the preaching of the word. Now this morning to stir our hearts and bless us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Isaiah paints a heavenly scene, a picture of a heavenly scene, in which the angels gather around the throne of God, and they sing his praise. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. Amen. The whole earth is full of his glory. The margin of the King James Bible tells us that the Hebrew can also mean that his glory is the fullness of the whole earth. His glory is the fullness of the whole earth. Now think about that. That all that you see around you, in all of its splendor, 
in all of its magnificence, all of it has the glory of God saturating it, permeating it, filling it up. The world is full of the glory of God. And it is, in fact, the glory of God that fills the earth. Everywhere you look, you see faces of people that you know and love. You smell, even right now, delicious food that is wafting up the stairs because we have a kitchen right at the bottom of the stairs. Unfortunate place for a kitchen, but I smell biscuits, rolls, baking right now. Does it make you hungry? Isn't it a glorious thing that God gave you a nose that can smell? Yes. On a beautiful fall day, this morning I woke up and I opened the blinds and I looked outside and I saw the fog in the rain and I thought, perfect fall day. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because we don't get a lot of rain in this area, but it just, it, I love it. I love it. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And God is telling you that his glory fills the earth. It is the fullness of this world. God has vested all of his creation with his glory. His glory is written large in the beauty of his handiwork. God came from Keman. And the Holy One from Mount Peru, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Everything around you is shouting hallelujah to the Lord. Everything in this created world. The mountains, the trees, the vegetables, the green grass, the snow when it falls, and the rain, the stars at night, the sun and the moon, the birds that fly, the animals that walk, all of it is shouting hallelujah to our Creator God. And this is the reason why when we stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon and takes our breath away, we are in awe. Words can't describe such a glorious sight. It's the reason why we'll walk into the front yard to get a better view of the glorious sunset. That's the reason why we can stand and watch for hours the water of a brook flowing over the rocks. Have you ever been mesmerized by that little bit of water that would barely go over the top of your shoes? But you can stand and watch it babble over the rocks for hours and the sight of fire in the fireplace is mesmerizing. You can sit and stare at it a fire in your fireplace for hours on end because it's written large with the glory of our Creator who made all of these things.
it staggers our mind to think that when God made, he didn't just make statues, but he brought the statues to life. He didn't just make shapes and geometric designs, but he made rugged mountains and valleys, deep valleys, and <clears throat> canyons, glorious canyons, and rivers, and lakes, and birds, and animals, and every kind of creature, and he made men. You stagger us sometimes with their stupidity. <laughs> and other times, we are amazed as we listen to them, as we hear them, as we consider what they say, or what they write, or what they sing, or what they sing about, or the amazing voice quality that they have in their songs, or their skill with musical instruments, and all of these things around us that God has given us, and man has taken, and harnessed, and used for pleasure, for, for joy, and happiness, to to fulfill our lives, to enrich us. All of this is a display of the grandeur, the majesty of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And our eye, our very own eye, is speaking, informing our hearts, interpreting what it sees in the world of nature. The message that our eye sends to our heart is a simple and yet profound message. In those moments when we stand on the summit of a mountain, or at the base of a magnificent canyon, when we watch a waterfall cascading over the rocks, or a flock of geese on their noisy flight south, when we see a grizzly bear fishing in a stream, or a squirrel adding to his stock of nuts, when we gaze in awe at the tiny fingers and tiny toes of a newborn baby, or when we look into the eyes of our spouse and see a window into their soul, all of nature is speaking. And this is the, me the message. The true glory of what you see is in the Creator and not in His creation. Your eyes are whispering to your heart. Look past what you see and see the hand that made it. See the God who created it, who sustains it, who upholds all things by the word of his power. Think of him. Glory in him. Don't just glory in the beauty of creation, in the delicious taste and smells that we'll enjoy. Don't just glory in the wonderful sounds that fill our ears, but think of the one who made all of this, who made it possible, who sustains it, who upholds it, who 
is the God of providence. Think of him. Glorify him. He is the one who's worthy to be praised. I, I tell you, I, I feel like I live in a little paradise. I mean, I know it's Utah and all, but still, when I drive in in the morning, when I drive in here to church, and I see Mount Ogden towering over our city, and I see the sun peeking up over the shoulders of the mountain, I think to myself, what a grand sight, what a glorious vision. But my eyes are telling me to look beyond that and think of the one who commanded the sun to rise yet again this morning, who caused it to come up, who built that mountain, and who keeps it in place. Think on him. That is the message that all creation is sending to us. You were not made to worship nature. You were made to worship nature's God. We're easily distracted by the majesty of God's creation. And it is a wonderful distraction, is it not? <coughs> I mean, you can spend a lot of time. I, I listened to music this morning. I, well, I couldn't see the mountains because they're covered uh, with clouds. But that in itself is also an amazing thing. That God can just drape those mountains and make them disappear with clouds. And the cloud will sit on the shoulder of the mountain sometimes, and you know that when the cloud goes away, there will be snow mm -hmm. there. It will leave behind a trail. It's an amazing thing. Nature is like a road sign that points us in the right direction. But too many are enamored with the road sign and never follow to where it points. When you see the sign for the Salt Lake City exit off the freeway, you have not yet reached your destination. That's not what you were aiming for. We must follow the sign until we arrive at the destination, and the destination is not nature. It is the creator, not the creation. Our lives, in fact, will be a disordered mess so long as we stop short of glorying in God himself. There are many people who will glory in the mountains and glory in nature and glory in all the things that they see and experience in this life while never acknowledging the one who made it all. But all of it is aimed at pointing us to God. So yes, we're delighted by the things of this natural world, the beauty of a yard full of weeds, or a, a hillside covered by ponderosa pines, or a baby's giggle, or a loved one's voice. But that delight is incomplete unless it leads us to delight in the one who made it all. And in fact, the chaos of our world comes from our world's refusal to trace that glory all the way back to its creator. When we stop short and refuse to, follow, to, to go where it's pointing, the result is chaos in our lives. That's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 1. Because of their refusal to glorify God as God. 
God gave them over to a reprobate mind. God said, if you refuse to glorify me as God and to be thankful, then the result will be that your life will be chaotic. If it were possible somehow to knock the, the sun from its position at the center of the universe, the result would be chaotic for the universe itself. Because the universe centers on the sun. It is the center, I think an appropriate center because of the display of glory in the sun that's so obvious. And it reminds us that God himself is the center of all things. And the glory of God, the brightness, the splendor of God's glory is the center of all things and what keeps everything in alignment. Which is why this weekly gathering for worship is crucial, vital to our own lives. Because week after week, we open the word of God, we sing his praise, and we are reminded that God is truly glorious, and I am not. It realigns my thinking. I spent the whole week worrying about work that I had to do, and worrying about bills that I had to pay, and worrying about health issues, and worrying about relationships. I spent all week, in other words, consumed with the things that were important to me. And then on the first day of the week, I start out the new week by reminding myself again that what really matters is not my work, not my bills, not my relationships, but my God. He is the one that really matters. His glory is above all things. And when I refocus and realign with the glory of God, then I am able to have order in my life. My life makes sense. I find meaning and purpose in what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. This is at the heart of the idea, in fact, of gratitude itself. Because gratitude is not just a duty. Gratitude is not just an exercise that we do. Gratitude is not just let's think of something, some way that we can say what we're thankful for and come up with silly or meaningful reasons to be thankful. But gratitude is me bowing before the glory, the majesty of heaven and saying, you are worthy of my praise and I owe everything to you, my very existence, my joy, my happiness, my sense of fulfillment, my purpose in life, I owe it all to you, Lord. That's really what gratitude is all about. Saying, Lord, thank you once again. Thank you. <clears throat> so we delight in God's handiwork, but in our world today, what we see is a great deal of delight in God's handiwork 
and a simultaneous rejection of God himself. And what could be more upside down than that? Wouldn't it make sense to say that the one who made all this goodness is the one who really deserves our praise? Consider that everything in nature has derived its existence from something somewhere. There, there has to be something that caused everything that is. And not only that, but we know that causes don't travel infinitely backwards. And so there has to be at the base, at the bottom, at the foundation, at the starting point, at the fountainhead of all existence, there has to be a reality that is absolute, uncaused, a reality that is over all. Otherwise, we lose the idea of reality altogether. There has to be a reality that is the foundation, the building, the cornerstone of all reality. And the Bible tells us what that reality is. The cause of all existence must be God. There is God who is an absolute reality, uncaused, underived, something that never began because it always was. The Bible is the only place where we find an unwavering answer to that question. There's not, there's not a hesitance about declaring what the answer is to that question. There is not a waffling. There's no, there's no um, uh, drawing back. Uh, there's no uh, reluctance to say what that uncaused cause is. In fact, the opening lines of Scripture tell us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was in the beginning, not having himself begun. God presents himself as I am that I am, an expression of God's eternal existence. God did not begin as a germ, did not begin as a seed that sprouted and grew into God. He did not begin, there was not an infancy of God that grew into, there was not an adolescence of God, there was not a mature adulthood of God, but God has always been and always will be exactly what he is. The Bible speaks of God's eternal existence from everlasting to everlasting, from infinity to infinity. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He speaks of his own eternal existence this way. In Revelation 1 and verse 8, he said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He describes himself there in terms of the alphabet. That's not the way we typically think of God. 
but God illustrates with the alphabet. In the, um, in the Greek, the alpha is the first letter, and the omega is the last. So you could think of it in English terms uh, from A to Z. I am A, I am the letter A, and I am the letter Z. And we know that in the alphabet, there's nothing before A, and there's nothing after Z. Even so, the Bible tells us that God, <clears throat> there is nothing before him and nothing after him. And if it were possible for us to peer over the edge of time and to look into eternity, and if it were possible for us to travel backwards in eternity as far as possible, we would never come to a place in time or in eternity where God was not present. He fills eternity from everlasting to everlasting. There are God. It is this God who fills eternity, who created all these things that delight us. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. But you should know that the one who fills eternity is not all by himself a lonely God. The book of Revelation ends with the same declaration that opened the book. In Revelation 1 and verse 8, God the Father said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. And then in Revelation 22 and verse 13, that is repeated. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Only in Revelation 22, it is not the first person of the Trinity who is speaking. It is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 22, 16, Jesus said, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Now there cannot... Logically, there cannot be two that are Alpha and Omega. We said Alpha and Omega means that there's nothing before God and nothing after Him. There cannot be two unless those two are one. One God. And this is what the Bible teaches us about Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. He upholds all things by the word of his power. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Not only does the Bible insist on the full deity of Jesus Christ, not only does the Bible insist that Jesus is not a lesser deity, not less God than what God the Father is, not growing into Godhead, Godhood, catching up with, trailing behind God the Father. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not acknowledge that even as a possibility. But Jesus is the fullness of God. The Bible teaches that. But not only that, the Bible insists that we can only come to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And the Bible insists that Jesus gives us the fullest picture of who God is. We beheld his glory. When we saw Jesus, John the Apostle, who walked with Jesus, who in fact laid his head on Jesus' bosom, John the Apostle said, when we looked at Jesus, we were beholding the glory of God himself. We were seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul echoes that idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Gazing on the face of Jesus. And this is the thing, because you and I don't have that privilege. We don't have the opportunity or the ability to see the face of Jesus Christ. And know those pictures of Jesus, you know, the woman-like pictures of Jesus, that's not what he looked like, all right? I can assure you, whatever he might have looked like, he did not look like that, all right? I, I'm quite certain of that. I don't think, well, anyway, uh, it doesn't matter because the Bible gives us descriptions of Jesus that are terrible, terrifying, in fact. Uh, and his hair is a flame of fire and all of that. But the point is not that you and I would be able to imagine the physical features of Jesus, but rather to look in the gospel record and to see Jesus go about doing good and to realize that that was God. That Jesus, when he healed the sick and he raised the dead and rebuked the Pharisees, that Jesus was not just acting as God, Jesus was God. And God wants you to understand him by understanding Jesus. By looking to Jesus, 
we learn, we see the fullest picture of what God is like. It's easy for us to look at the Old Testament and to be terrified by some of the things that we see there. But God says the fullest picture of who I am is seen in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, that tells us so many wonderful things about God, about who he is and what he does. In Romans 1, God insists that none of these things are hidden in such a way that you and I can't see them, can't perceive them. God insists, in other words, that his fullness that is put on display in the person of Jesus Christ, his fullness is not concealed. It's not hidden. It's not that you've got to, you know, like look behind all the doors, look under all the cups to find that key that he keeps you know, switching cups around and hiding, you know, the shell game. And you just never can quite guess it so that you can see it. God doesn't, God, in fact, refuses to acknowledge that as a possibility. God has not hid his glory from us. He has, in fact, put it on full display. He's put it on display in a general sense in nature, where we see his craftsmanship, his handiwork, his artistry, we see. And I, by the way, have you ever read an author so much that you could recognize the author's voice even if you didn't, uh, even if you didn't see where the passage came from? You've heard the story before. I tell you that uh, you can almost pick out if you've read Louis the Lord. You could almost pick out one of his books, uh, even if you didn't have the cover on it. You just know that somewhere along the line, the guy's going to pick up a handful of gravel and put it in his mouth. You just know that's going to happen, right? Um, and there's going to be, you know, a really beautiful woman, and there's going to be a gunfight at sundown, and all those things that, why we read that? And the same thing, you know, you could turn on the TV, and you can see a Hallmark movie, and you can know it's a Hallmark movie, even if you haven't seen the title or the beginning of it. You jump in the middle, and you know it's a Hallmark movie. It's right there. Right there. It's like easy pickings. Right there. I've, I've enjoyed uh, reading uh, Spurgeon sermons over the years uh, to the point where you can recognize his voice. And famous artists and painters. I'm not that invested in, uh, in uh, classical music, uh, but if you were, I, I'm quite sure you would be able to distinguish Bach from Mozart. I think you'd be able to recognize their voice, their style, and so on. Our Creator God has a very distinct style. Versatile. He makes rugged mountains. You just go down to southern Utah and see the buffness of Zion National Park. And then go see the delicate spires of Bryce Canyon. Consider the hummingbird 
and his delicate wings, and the rhinoceros and his thick hide and heftiness. And you see what an amazing creator we have. God has not hid his glory from us. Not even in the face of Jesus Christ. The things that Jesus did, he did out in the open so that all could see it. And he's recorded it in his word. And his word has been passed down from generation to generation and spread to every corner of the world. These things are not hidden. God insists. Verse 19 of Romans 1, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Here's how this works. God insists that he has made himself known by means of his words, that God insists that you would recognize his hand in all of creation, that you would see it and know that it was the same God who made all these things. God has revealed himself in his works of creation. If you spend any time thinking about nature, you cannot help but see the handiwork of our Creator God. And if nature delights you, and as I said, who has not been caught up in the beauty of creation at one time or another, has not stood in awe and gazed, watched, mesmerized by the beauty of what God created in our world. If nature delights you, it's natural that you would want to know more about the one who made all of this. The Creator has made himself known in the Bible, and in the Bible, God has made it known that he is not a lonely bachelor God. He's a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because God is so grand and so glorious. <clears throat> Mankind can't bear the sight of him. And so, God took on human form, entered our world in the likeness of men, became flesh and dwelt among us. God insists that we see his face in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is the point where men reject God. That's the point right there. They reject his only begotten son. They refuse to see Jesus as God. And God says that when we reject Jesus, we have rejected God. And this, in fact, is the height of ingratitude. And that's exactly the way God sees it. Ingratitude. That would make you reject my one and only son. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. 
but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. In gratitude, when you sit in judgment of God, when you refuse to take his word for it and believe his word, when you decide instead that you will decide for yourself, that you will determine for yourself what you will believe and what you won't believe, that you will not surrender to the teaching of God's word. That is ingratitude, my friend. You received all this goodness, all these blessings, at the hand of a gracious provider God. And in response, you refuse to thank him. That is ingratitude. <clears throat> ingratitude is a willful sin, not a sin of ignorance. It's found wherever men reject the triune God. It displays itself in our failure to center our lives around the incomparable splendor of his glory. In our pursuit of things that aren't glorious, while neglecting the one thing that truly is. In the time I have left, I want to drill into the innate ingratitude of man's rejection of God. And first of all, I want you to consider ingratitude as willful sin. Notice what our text says. Creation displays the invisible things of God. Creation displays those invisible things. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them, were the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has put his own Godhead in display, on display, in our world. The heavens declare his glory. The whole universe longs to give him praise. Such is the tension in our world. The created world watches the rebellion of men. And Jesus warned, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. It's as if all of the natural world is poised and ready in case man should ever fail to praise the Lord. Because the rocks will cry out and praise him. Every part of the created world praises and glorifies the Creator God, except mankind, who alone has the power to do so willingly and rationally. Men withhold that praise. It isn't because we're smarter than the rest of creation. It's because we're rebellious as opposed to the rest of creation in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Our ingratitude is driven by our rebellion against God. We don't like him to be God. As I pointed out in Sunday school this morning, the world is fine with the pantheon. The world is fine with the cafeteria-style approach to God. You can walk in and 
I can pick the God that fits me best. That's the God the world wants to worship. A God of my own imagination, a God of my own creation. That's why, by the way, the world accuses us of being God's creator. Because that's what the world does. They make their gods. That's the difference, really, between the false religions of this world and the true religion of the Bible. The difference is that the false religions of the world, man created God. And in the true religion, God created man. That's the difference right there. And we are simply acknowledging him as our creator God and thanking him for making us and giving us the things that sustain our life and that make our life better. If anything is blind, it's us. <clears throat> and this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. It is our harboring of what God has forbidden, sin. It is our harboring of sin that holds us back, that keeps us from acknowledging God as God. Jesus gives the clearest demonstration of what God is like, as we said. In the face of Jesus Christ, we see God's grace on full display, his long-suffering, his mercy, his kindness. But men willfully reject him. It isn't that we don't have a desperate need for pardon. It's that we're desperate to hold on to our sin, to protect our sin, against God himself. Our sin has become our precious. We shield it from God. We hide it from God. We let it destroy our lives rather than give it up. Ever. And that is man's rebellion. And ultimately it traces back to a refusal to give thanks to God. This is ingratitude, a refusal to acknowledge our benefactor, willful sin. We know that we have all these wonderful gifts and we know that we need to give thanks. But when it comes time to give thanks, we look the other way. We refuse to acknowledge the goodness of God. And then secondly, I want you to consider ingratitude as a rejection of God because ingratitude you might think well all I'm doing is refusing to thank him or neglecting things no but the Bible sees it as a rejection of God himself there are those who reject God outright who refuse to acknowledge him at all they insist that there is no God <clears throat> that they hate the thought that there might be a God. And the reason God seems like such an oppressive idea to them is because they like to have their own way. They like to take all the gifts and all the riches that God has poured out on them abundantly. 
and they use, like to use it for their own purposes instead of for the purpose that God intended. That's the point. And that's why I say that sin is a kind of extortion from God, taking the things that God has given to us and misappropriating them, misusing them, using them for purposes other than what God intended. God has blessed us with so much abundance, riches, right? And we take that and we use it for self instead of God. And we know that that's what we're doing. Like the guy that, you know, he works uh, and he's paid handsomely to get work done for the good of the company, but he spends his time gambling at his desk on the computer that his boss gave him, right? With the time that his boss is paying him for, right? He uses that to enrich himself instead of using it for what was intended. It's no different when we take the good gifts of God and use them for self. God stands in the way of us having our own way. Now, <clears throat> there is no proof that can be used to refute the existence of God. No one has ever offered proof that shows conclusively that there is no God. Nobody has, ever. No one has, in fact, ever attempted one. People have attempted and come up with proofs that or arguments against God, but those are not proofs. No one has ever been able to conclusively prove that there is no God. Nobody has. Nobody has ever been able to conclusively prove that this world is the result of a magnificent accident, a collision of matter and energy. No one has ever proved it. Nobody ever has. And in fact, we find it impossible that God does not exist. It is impossible. If God doesn't exist, then all of the splendor around us came out of nothing. Impersonal matter and energy caused all this personality and intelligence around us, and that's impossible. But that's why God says, neither were they thankful. God has blessed all of mankind with so many rich treasures in our world, Beautiful scenery, delicious food, happiness, delight, joy. And men don't want to thank him. They're like a spoiled child who looks at everything as an entitlement. That's why he's throwing a fit in the grocery store aisles, right? Because everything on those shelves is for me and should be for me. And you, mom, exist to please me and give me what I want. I want that. And I'm going to throw a temper tantrum if you don't give it to me. And that's what men are doing. They look around at all the riches, all the abundance, and they say, that should be mine. It should be mine. No thanks, no praise, no gratitude. Once in a while you'll see a mom appease her child by putting in the shopping cart the thing that her child wanted. Does that fix the attitude? I've never seen it fix the attitude at all. There's only one thing that fixes the attitude, and that's a wall up on the behind. 
consistently applied. That's it. Nothing else does. I've never seen a little child throwing a temper tantrum. Mom puts the thing in the grocery cart and the little child says, thank you, mom. Never heard that. Never. If you've seen it, please videotape it. Post it on YouTube. We need to see more of this kind of thing because I don't believe it happens. Because that child is self-centered. He's living on a small scale what those who reject God are living on a large scale. There are those who embrace the man Christ Jesus but deny his glory and Godhood. This also is ingratitude. See, either Jesus is God or he's the devil from hell. There's no in-between. A man who said what Jesus said and did what Jesus did, made the claims that Jesus made, was either a horrible, vicious, deadly liar, or he was, in fact, very God of very God. There can be no other option, because he claimed to, his word was the word of God. He spoke the words of God. To embrace him as a person, while rejecting everything that he claims about himself, is to reject him altogether. But we want Jesus to be our peer and not our Lord. And that's ingratitude. It'd be like accepting all the provisions your parents give you, but denying that they have any authority as your parents. I'll take all the the nice, comfortable house I have to live in, and the food that you prepare me, and the clothes that you buy me, but don't ask me to take out the trash, and don't act like you're my mom and dad. That's ingratitude. And it's the same thing that people do to Jesus. They receive all the good gifts that he gives, but they reject him as Lord and Savior as God. That's ingratitude. There are those who hold right doctrines about Jesus, who believe that he is God, that he is Lord, but they fail to honor him as the Lord of their life, to live as if he is the Lord. They do not, in other words, allow their doctrine about Christ to affect their life, their lifestyle, their manner of living. They don't look at it and say, if he's the Lord, then I ought to live like it. They don't do that. And that also, my friend, is ingratitude. It is, in fact, the height of ingratitude. Because not only are you receiving the material blessings that he pours out on every man, but you also are staking a claim, making a claim to the spiritual blessings that he has given by means of the gospel, by means of his death on the cross and his burial and his resurrection. You're claiming that the promises of God for eternal life are yours while refusing to live as if Jesus is your Lord. 
That's the height of ingratitude. Right there. If you know that he's the Lord and that he deserves to be the Lord, but you still don't want to honor him as the Lord, that's ingratitude. Your lips honor him, but not your heart. And ingratitude, my friend, is a heart issue. I'm afraid that God's people fall into this sin from time to time. We all want the gifts, but we don't always want the obligations. And that's sin against God. The third thing I want you to consider then is ingratitude as sin. The glory of God should be the center of all things, just as the sun is the center of the universe. When God's glory becomes the central reference point of your life, your life will be ordered rightly. But men sin against God by pursuing, as if it were glorious, things that are not glorious at all. In other words, what men do is, rather than pursuing God, rather than seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, they pursue things. They pursue a little slice of the created world that they want for themselves. And that's the sort of ingratitude that disorders your life. We worship what we value, and we value what we worship. Mankind has demonstrated a persistent ability to ignore God in pursuit of lesser things. This is the way our ingratitude shows itself. This is something that can be repaired by a feast on Thanksgiving Day or a prayer of Thanksgiving before the meal or a testimony in a Thanksgiving service. This is, in fact, the central problem in our lives. We do not live a life of gratitude towards God. And the only answer to this is repentance towards God. Faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only answer. To say, Lord, I have not been thankful. I have not acknowledged your claim on my life, and I have not been thankful. When I think of Jesus' claim on me as the Lord, I feel oppressed. I feel like I'm being tormented. It doesn't fill me with gratitude. That is a mark of rebellion against God, and that's what we must repent of. And we must repent until we see Christ as Lord and are thankful that he's the Lord. We see all the good gifts that he's poured out on us and see it as coming from the hand of a good and gracious God. And we want to spend our life, dedicate our lives to praising him. Repent until then.